Church, I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 12. We're going to look at verse 17 and verse through verse 21. It is good to be together today, amen? It's good to know that as we gather here, the Lord is present with us. Christ is present pray that we feel him this morning. We experience his presence through his word. Now, as we hear it read and as it is preached in your hearing, I pray that Christ would speak to you as he speaks to me. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word, and then we will study this text together. Starting with verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This morning, I'm going to title my sermon, Loving Your Enemy. And this is something that all of us say, "Mm mm-hmm, too. We know that's biblical, and we say, "Uh uh-oh, loving your enemy. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Father, we thank you for the way that you have loved us. We ask that as we study this text that you would open our hearts to your word. I pray that you would help me to preach your truths, not merely my ideas, that our hearts would be shaped and fashioned according to the likeness of Jesus by this text. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Loving your enemy. A 2021 Baltimore Sun article lamented the retaliatory-based killings in our city, envisioning a solution and an end to that kind of violence. They hoped for, in the article, and I quote, a long, an end to the long, dreary cycle of killing and retaliation that has wasted so many lives and worn down this city. One of the challenges of being a Christian in Baltimore City is that you know a lot. You see a lot. But you're just enough distantly removed to where you feel like you can't make much of an impact as it relates to those who are pulling the triggers, feeling incapable. Years ago, I remember one situation in which there was a shooting, and then there was a retaliation to that shooting, and that initial shooter was killed. And then there was a retaliation to that retaliation, and the retaliator was killed. At least two deaths 
as a result of retaliation. And if I could take a guess, I would imagine that there were many more bodies in that chain link of events. When we think about the, the strings of murders and homicides in our city, I would assume that many of them, if not most of them, are based on retaliation. And every November, December, city leaders bemoan the murder toll, and the Baltimore Sun writes its obligatory article talking about how we've reached 300-plus murders in Baltimore City, and it goes on year after year after year. Why do homicides continue? It's because retaliation continues. Why does retaliation continue? Well, let's not be proud this morning. Retaliation in the streets continues because retaliation is in our own hearts. It's in the human heart. It's a problem that only the Holy Spirit and the gospel can solve. All of the programs, all of the no-shoot zones, all of the nonprofits cannot change the human heart. Why is there retaliation in the streets? Well, let's ask this question. Why does a man gossip about another to destroy his reputation after he's been hurt by him? Why does a spouse cheat after their own spouse has cheated on them to hurt them back? Why does a church member give a passive-aggressive cold shoulder to another church member who has hurt them? It's because we commit the same kinds of sin. Retaliation is not just a street problem. Retaliation is in the human heart. And so the greatest need for our community is also the greatest need for us, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The main idea in this text is right there in verse 17. If you take a look at your, your Bible, it says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Repay nobody evil for evil. Evil for evil. Somebody say evil for evil. This helps us to define what we're talking about when we say retaliation. Evil for evil. To commit the same evil against another which that person or someone connected with them has committed against you. It is to become like your enemy. It is to descend to take on their guilt. The guilt that is theirs to Make that guilt yours to descend to their level. For example, let's use adultery as, as, as an example. It's an easy one. Let's say that one man uh, commits adultery against his wife, sins against his wife in that way. An atrocity, a violation of their marriage covenant. Now, in response... She commits adultery against her husband. And as she's moving in that direction, she feels even justified in doing so because she's going to pay him back for the hurt that has been done to her. And so what happens then is she participates in the same evil that has, that has so broken her. 
the opposite of giving evil for evil, according to verse 17, is to do what is honorable. What is honorable. And then he goes on to say, in the sight of all. Meaning even non-Christians know that this kind of retaliatory evil for evil is wrong. In the sight of all is referring to not just believers, but unbelievers. You see, Christians are called to be a light to unbelievers. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 15 and 16. He said, people don't light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, disciples, Christians, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your, God, uh, your Father who is in heaven. Peter picks up on the same, same theme in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. Meaning we are called to live exemplary lives before, uh, before the, the lost and dying world, in sight of all people, to do what is honorable. And in this case, what he's saying is, is to pursue peace, to live peacefully in a world that is filled with retaliatory chaos. He unpacks this in verse 18. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I think of Jeremy McLean who gave his testimony at our, uh, uh, um, our what do we call it, intentional living workshop a couple of years ago, and Jeremy talked about how he had uh, just recently uh, broken up a fight. He was doing some evangelism in the community and there was a fight that was happening in the park, and he jumped into this, and he broke the fight up, and uh, they actually kind of went their own ways. And then somebody from the community saw that happen, and they came over to Jeremy, and they're like, you're a fool, like, don't do that. You know, if people are fighting, just get away from them, like, don't go into it. And Jeremy said that he had then the opportunity to talk about how God has called him to become a peacemaker. And how the gospel of peace has brought peace to his life, and he's to extend that peace to others. So use it as a gospel opportunity. My point is this, is, is that we are called as Christians to be peacemakers. So while the world, listen to this, makes war, we make peace. We are a counter-cultural society. We don't act like everybody else. Like, that's kind of like Christianity 101. You become a Christian, you're changed. Number one, you don't act like the rest of the world anymore. We are a people of peace. Is anybody with me? And so he goes on to say, or as he explains this, he says in verse 18, he says, now, if possible, as much as it depends on you, Meaning, church, you can only answer for yourself. You can't answer for them. You might speak words of peace, but they seek war. One thing we can point out here is this, is there is no victim that is responsible for the evil that is perpetrated against them. Meaning, 
If you were abused, you are not guilty for that. If you were violated, you are not responsible in any way for what happened to you. In our best efforts, you know, if it's possible, uh, um, how does he say it? As, as long as it depends on me, in my best efforts, if somebody sins against me, that is their sin, that they are responsible, not my failure. If somebody sins against you, that is their issue, not your failure. And so the Bible is like, I love the Bible because it's the most realistic book there is. He doesn't just simply say, live peacefully. Among all people, he says, if possible, if possible, live in peace. Um, as, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. You see what he's saying here? So the big question then that, that this brings us to is, okay, great. It's not always possible. And so how do I then respond when I'm sinned against? You know, if, and this is a big if, if I could live at peace with all people, the question of vengeance would never be an issue because it's all peace, right? If, and this is a big if, if I could have peace with all people, then I would never have to figure out how to handle my enemy because I don't have any enemies, but the problem is, is it's not always possible to live at peace with all people. As far as it depends on you, meaning they might seek war while you seek peace. So when you find yourself then with an enemy, you, meaning you find yourself sinned against in some fashion. Somebody said something about you. Somebody did something to you. They physically or emotionally or spiritually harmed you. They took from you. How do we respond? Well, you kind of already know the answer because it's in my title, Loving Our Enemies. But what, is that, what does this mean, to love our enemies? And how do we, do th- how do we go about this? How do, what do we do with this feeling of, like, vengeance, retaliation? Let me just point out two things here. It's the, the answer is in verse 19 and verse 20, all right? My two points, verse 19 is number one, verse 20 is number two. Verse 19, first point is this. Christians give vengeance to God. And secondly, Christians give kindness to their enemies. But let's, let's look at the first one first. Christians give vengeance to God. Look at verse 19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written... This is God speaking. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now that word repay is an interesting word. Meaning, you know, if you were to give me $5, I were to repay you what? $5. That's the way we typically think of repayment. Michael White said six. He's trying to collect some interest. You need a loan? Go to Michael White. Uh, a little loan shark in the back of the room. He says, $10. <laughs> um, 
But, but and this is the point, though. It's like repayment typically means like I owe somebody. It's kind of a positive thing, like I owe them something positive. I owe them $5. And he uses this word repay as it relates to revenge. Well, let's just think about this then. If I'm going to pay somebody back for something, that means I've received something from them. What have I received from my enemy? Well, I could probably summarize it in this way. I've received pain and loss. And so then to repay them would be to give back pain and loss. And actually, going back to Michael White's comment, we often do that with interest. So, so... Uh, God is saying here, I'm going to repay. I'm going to repay. Well, what does this mean? How does this help us? Here's the issue. We can never pay somebody back enough for what they've done to us. Let me use uh, another example of a spouse. Let's say that somebody took the life of your spouse. Such pain and loss. And so let's say one eye for an eye, uh, tooth for a tooth, you go and take their spouse. Did you really pay them back? No, you haven't. Why? Because you're still dealing with pain and loss that that retaliatory action, that that vengeance could not take care of. You could kill all the spouses in the world and you still have pain and loss from you losing your own. Meaning our vengeance doesn't properly pay people back. It's impossible. Listen, if, you, if you're not a Christian, you need to understand that if there is no God, there is no real payback in the world for all of the atrocities that has happened in your life. The only possible way that there can be justice is if there is a God who can in some fashion pay somebody back but also restore what you have lost. In some fashion, you see, God has the ability to not only repay the individual with punishment, but it's more than punishment. Justice is full restoration of what you've lost. You see, in God's justice, as he pays them back for their pain and loss that they've given to you, God also has the power to recompense the victim. Now, Paul is quoting here Deuteronomy chapter 32. If you, if you quick on the draw, let's turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Keep your finger in Romans chapter 12. If, you, if you're not quick on the draw, just stay where you're at. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. We see uh, uh, Paul quote, uh, this, this very passage, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. But what's the context of Deuteronomy chapter 32? This is going to help us understand what he's talking about here. Deuteronomy chapter 32 is a passage that is declaring God's judgment against the nation of Israel, but also against the nations who have harmed the people of God. These are people who have slaughtered uh, uh, the people of God. They're, they're people who have shed the blood of the innocents. They have offered their children as sacrifices. And God says of them in verse 24, 
I will send wasting famine against them, consuming pestilence and deadly plague. I will send against them the fangs of wild beasts, the venom of vipers that glides in the dust. Powerful judgment language. Verse 25, he goes on, he says, they are a nation without sense. There is no discernment in them. Now, this leads us to an interesting point in the passage. While God has wrath, wrath is not an attribute of God. Love is an attribute of God. Humility is an attribute of God. But God is not wrath. The Bible never says that. God is love. Are you with me? It never says God is wrath. Well, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have wrath. You see, wrath is the other side of God's love. God loves, first and foremost, His own glory in this world. And those who He has saved by His glorious Son, His precious blood shed on Calvary, the image of God stamped on every single human being has value and worth, no matter who you are. And so an affront against a human being is ultimately an affront against God. And so God, therefore, has wrath. It is right. It is just. But as we study, as we, as we look at ver, uh, chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, what we see is that even in verse 29, this, this, in this, this powerful chapter of judgment, with such visceral language in verse 29, we see the heart of God. He says, if only they were wise and would understand this and discern what their end will be. Meaning God is saying all of this terrible judgment is coming upon them and it's coming from God Himself. And God says if only they would wake up. If only they would realize that this life that they're living is leading to this end. If only they had understanding to discern that. You see, we, we see the heart of God's patience here. We see the, the, the loving and kind, gracious heart of God. Now, going back to God's own vengeance and wrath, for those who wonder, when you look across at, at the world and you see people getting away with stuff, and you wonder, will God ever do anything? Will God allow the, the abuser to get away? Will God allow the murderer to escape? Look at verse 34. God has not forgotten. He says, have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vaults? Meaning, 40 years later, after the atrocity was committed and the uh, perpetrator believes that he or she got away with it and the world has forgotten, society has forgotten, even the victims have forgotten to some degree, but the perpetrator is not forgotten by God. Meaning, no, there, there's no amount of time, there's no amount of time, there's no amount of human forgetfulness that can justify a wrong that, once, that was once done. Every bit of it has been stored in God's vault. And so that leads us then to the very next verse where God says in verse 35, it is mine to avenge. 
It's mine, meaning it's my issue. You know, if a sin has been committed against me, not you, it's not your place to deal with it. But what God is saying is his sin is primarily in a front against his image, against who he is. And so it's not our place to deal with it. And God says, I am going to avenge this. It is mine to avenge. And, and he says, I will repay. There's the word again. And then he says, in due time, their foot will slip. Their day of disaster is near. Their doom rushes upon them. So going back to Romans chapter 12 then, verse 19, <clears throat> never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. This does not mean that we are to shrug our shoulders at sin. This doesn't mean that God shrugs his shoulders at sin. This doesn't lead us to a life of passivity towards sin. This isn't us being weak or helpless, all right? This is us to say, no, we have a bigger help than you realize. We have a greater strength and power than you know. God hates the sin that has been committed against you even more than you hate it. And his vengeance is more powerful than anything you can come up with. And his repayment is exact and it is just. So, you can take vengeance into your own hands. You can go ahead and try that. You can retaliate and stoop down to their level and become evil for evil and take on the kind of guilt that they've done against you. Or you can say, no, I'm going to trust the Lord. Vengeance is my Lord's. I'm putting it into His hands. Saints, when... When sinners seemingly get away with it, it's only temporary. You might say, well, 40 years, 50 years, that's a long time. Yeah, that's a long time. But not when we think of eternity. It's only temporal, and their foot will slip. Now, a couple questions this leads us to. Number one, does this mean that we're hoping for hell for our enemies? Are we hoping that our enemies will go to hell? Well, I would say no. We join God in his heart in Deuteronomy chapter 32 where God says, if only they were wise and understood and discerned what their end would be. We have that kind of heart. We say, if only they would wake up and repent and turn to God and find the forgiveness and help and, uh, that they need in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our heart. God does not wish that any would perish, and we do not wish that any would perish. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus exhorts his disciples to love their enemies. And then he says, pray for those who persecute them. How do we pray? Pray that they would know the love of God. Pray that they would repent of their sins. Repent of, what, of their sins against you that they would trust in Jesus Christ. Well, this then leads us to another question. That's another problem for some. Does that mean there's no justice in salvation? You know, if God says, vengeance is mine, and then God says, I'm going to forgive them, do they get off scot-free? Is there no justice there? Saints, this is why we need a robust understanding of the doctrine of penal substitution. Penal referring to penalty. 
substitution, referring to the atonement of Jesus Christ in which he took the penalty for our sin in his own body on the cross. You see, some Christians today want to minimize that doctrine. They want to minimize the wrath of God that Jesus took on the cross as if wrath of God is a bad thing. <laughs> no, clearly we say amen. It's a good thing. If Jesus did not take the judgment for sin personally, like God's personal wrath for sin on the cross, then there is no justice in salvation. But the doctrine of our salvation, our atonement, tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, the vault was opened up. The reserve of all of that wrath for the sin, every single sin that was committed against God, first and foremost, and against other people, that God has stored up all of that judgment, all of that wrath, stored up as, as waters behind a dam. That dam broke and all of that wrath came down onto Jesus Christ on the cross. And for all who call upon his name, Christ bore every bit of it. He swallowed all of that judgment in his body. And it killed him and it buried him. Christ became like the abuser and the, 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 the murderer and the thief. Not in any way taking on their guilt onto himself personally, but taking God's wrath for their guilt. He became the substitute. Substitutional atonement church. This is where we find our answer. Is there justice in salvation? The answer is absolutely yes. Christ bore the wrath of God that your perpetrator deserved. This is powerful. This is mind-boggling. Now, the Christian, it, it, I'm not saying this is easy, but the Christian can't accept this. Why? It's because he died for our sins as well. You see, when we come to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to deal with our own errors. We come with humility knowing that their judgment for us was in that vault as well. Wrath for our sin was in that reserve as well. You see, the world is not a place of innocent people over here and guilty people over here. You know, I don't assume that right now I'm talking only to innocent people. Only the victims. I assume there's perpetrators in the room. And by the way, I assume that every one of us is a little bit of victim and a little bit of perpetrator. Like when we see this passage, we see ourselves in both. We are not only the one called to love our enemies, we've also been the enemy of others. We've also brought harm on others. We've also sinned against the image of God. So here's the point. When you know that God has forgiven you, you're able to pray for them, that they might see their end and repent. And if they do, and that's an if, they might not. If they do, they would see Christ as the one who bore his wrath against their sin committed against you. 
And if they don't, God has not forgotten. God has not forgotten their sin. And God will never forget their sin. Sinner, turn to Christ. You cannot stand before this God on your own. You cannot stand on your own two feet, your own self-righteousness, your own works, your own good deeds, and believe that in some way he will just forget the vault. Turn to Christ and see Christ as your sufficient Savior. Trust in him and know that in this moment today you are saved. And God is on your side. He is with you. He is your fortress to run into. So how do we win our enemies? How do we love our enemies? Number one, Christians give vengeance to God. Secondly, Christians give kindness to their enemies. So, in contrast to retaliation, Christians show kindness. Look at verse 20. To the contrary, Paul now quotes Proverbs 25, 21, and 22. To the contrary, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will will heap burning coals on his head. Now, the call is clear and simple. If the person who has wronged you is out there hungry, they're broke, they don't have any food in their belly, he's saying, open your refrigerator. Show kindness to the person that has wronged you. Now, this is not, this is like pre-repentance, all right? They have yet to apologize. (laughs) They have yet to turn. He says, show them kindness. Instead of payback, charity. Instead of revenge, benevolence. Instead of getting even, goodwill. That's the Christian response toward our enemy. And he goes on to say, and this is an interesting phrase, he says, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. I think when I was growing up, I would hear that, and I would think, like, it's like not really kindness. It's like kind of kindness, but I'm actually just like somehow putting burning coals on there. Like I'm getting, this is is like better than like slapping them in the face as I'm going to be kind and give you some water, and I'm just going to watch as your hair turns into fire. What does this mean? How does our kindness heap burning coals on their head? Well, historically, from uh, a lot of Christian history, theologians have understood that to be some kind of shame. Like when you give kindness to a person who has wronged you, there's a sense in which you're increasing their shame against what they've done to you and leading them to think about it. And I think that there, that could be, there could be some truth to that. Um, some have suggested that it is a, in some ways sealing the deal of God's judgment against them. So, for example, in Jewish literature around the same time, coals of fire is used at one point to refer to God's judgment. The challenge here is that's God's judgment, and this sounds like it's something that we're putting on them, like our coals of fire. And so how can my coals of fire be the same as God's coals of fire? Are you with me? But maybe there's something there as well, and some, some allusion to the judgment of God in that you know, we're kind of burying them in their guilt. As we're kind to them, we're rising above, 
and were testifying against them on that final day, uh, so to speak, that they were guilty against us. But I think, maybe a combination of those two things and something else, but I think the heartbeat behind it is winning your enemy. I think the heartbeat behind it is restoration. Why is that? Well, look at verse 21, the next verse. As he explains what he means here, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome is to be a conqueror. It is to be a winner. Win it. Win, win your enemy, he's saying, with good. Meaning, we are more than conquerors even when we are wronged. So our approach then with evil is to not repay evil with evil, but to conquer evil with good. Meaning good has the power to transform the wicked. So then going back to this coals of fire, what does coals of fire mean? This is my little hybrid interpretation here. I think what it means is that that kindness does have the power to increase shame, and I think it testifies against them of that end that is to come in which they are uh, uh, under the wrath of God, and therefore it has the power to potentially culminate in their repentance, meaning we're hoping to win them, not destroy our enemy, but we're hoping to win our enemy. What a difference. In eighteen. In 1958, Elizabeth Elliot moved to live among the Harani tribe in Ecuador. Just two years prior to Elizabeth Elliot's move, her husband, Jim, and four others had been in the same area ministering to the same people otherwise known as the Aucas. And Jim and his four friends were all murdered by the Harani tribe as they were trying to share the gospel with them. Motivated by the love of God, motivated by a call to love the enemy, motivated by the belief that all people, even her husband's murderers, needed to hear the gospel message, Elizabeth didn't give up. For the two years From 1956 to 1958, after her husband's death, she studied the Harani language and culture on her own. She befriended Harani people. And then in 1958, two years later, she and her little daughter moved into the Harani village, intentionally residing among them to show them the love of God. Church, does anybody know that Christ intentionally moved in with us, intentionally resided among us to show us the love of God? He was a friend of sinners. He reconciled his enemy on the cross, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, not counting our trespasses against us, but entrusting us with the gospel message. Church, love your enemies so that they might know Christ. And one day, we will live at peace with all. One day when Christ comes again, 
One day he will put a final end to retaliation. One day he will put, put a final end to manipulation. One day he will put a final end to war. One day, one day we will live at peace with all people. One day you will see some of your enemies in heaven loving each other forever in eternity with a perfect, pure kind of love. And together you may gaze upon the, the wounded Messiah. You'll together look at the bloodied Lamb of God which was slain for your sins. Together you may look into the nail-scarred hands of Christ. Together with, with potentially your enemy, you may kiss the feet of Christ. His wounded feet. Wounds which forever declare the wonder of God's redemption. Since that peace is ours, since we are citizens of that country, since we are moving in that direction, since we are a people of peace, we love our enemies. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this challenging passage and call for us to love our enemies. We pray that we would be a people who live lives that are honorable in the sight of all so that all people might glorify our Father who is in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.